I'm Evan Rowland. And I'm Hannah Schaefer. Welcome to Design Doc. To come up with my own world. Yeah. Um, It can just be a tiny sensation or sight or sound. It doesn't have to be a whole world. All right. It's a vision of an old woman going deep into a cave underground. She holds only a single candle. She is barefoot. She carries nothing else. Does she know what she's looking for? Yes, she does. Is there anything in the cave? She hopes there is. (laughs) (laughs) Why didn't she even bother to light the candle? (laughs) She doesn't need to. All right. (laughs) She knows that when she gets to what she's seeking, the candle will light. Mm. Was there anyone there to see her off? Her grandson. Uh He's the only one she told. Cool. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> More diamonds. Love a diamond. All right. The change of value or design. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, I'm going to go with that. I'm, I'm, go. I'm going to lean into it. Yeah. She walks. Uh, um, she walks out. Twenty minutes later, lighter one candle with <laughs> just the dopest shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Curly, curly gates oh, yeah. toes with belts. <laughs> and with that, we oh. hit the floor. What you just heard were snippets of world building in our very first playtest ever of Questlandia, the sequel. We played it two weeks ago now. One week. This was a large playtest with far more players than we expected because of how we scheduled things. So, Hannah, do you want to go over what we did to prepare for and run this playtest? Yeah, so we've been trying to schedule the first playtest for like six weeks now or something. (laughs) (laughs) It was supposed to happen uh, weeks ago, but there was some flu that happened. We got sick. Yes. Um, And then, of course, because everybody has grown up schedules, it's really hard to re- it's really hard to schedule and even harder to reschedule. And then we made it even harder than it needed to be. <laughs> because in my in my feverish flu state, I accidentally scheduled both playtest groups for the same night. <laughs> so we just rolled with it and said, okay, everybody come on over. We'll just do a big group thing. And it ended up kind of working out because, I mean, I didn't realize that we'd scheduled two playtests for the same night until Monday night rolled around and we were just waiting. Like we hadn't prepared food. We prepared all of the rules last minute and we were just like waiting for people to show up. And we were like, gosh, our friends are really not 
timely tonight. We had a huge amount of curry that was oh, just yeah. for the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I made this like curry. <laughs> so actually, our friends are very prompt, but I had just scheduled them all for Tuesday. So the good thing is that gave us the impetus to do even more preparations <laughs> because we were doing everything we could for the play tests that didn't happen. Yeah, I think those few extra hours of, you know, preparing the rules really helped the the actual play test because we were sort of scrambling at the last minute and, you know, trying to figure out exactly how we wanted to run the play test. So that extra day was kind of a blessing in disguise. And it was fun. It also let us run a different type of play test because the group was so large that we had to just make make it a little bit more of a what's so not play storm isn't the word, but like brainstormy. Yeah, it was like a trial run of a few different mechanics we're experimenting with and less a coherent role-playing experience. But it actually ended up running pretty well, I think, with a large group. So who knows? People seemed happy. Yep. <laughs> uh, so Evan, with this playtest that we ran two weeks ago now, what went right? Well, we tried a couple different styles of world building. One designed for brief glimpses of worlds, which was the introduction of the game. As you're falling into this library, you're brushing by books and getting glimpses of the worlds that are in them. Those went really well. They were bizarre, interesting, exciting worlds that popped out, were very different from one another, and were cast aside. We also tried out a set of world-building tools for larger, like we're going to spend some real time in this world kind of world-building. That also, it, you know, that one was more challenging, but the world we made was great. It was a really interesting world, and it felt like, like we could definitely dive into this world for a full adventure. One thing that I think everybody liked across the board is that, you know, we're we're experimenting with these multi-level characters in the game with these junk poets that are exploring this ruined world and have fallen into this ruined library. And then these characters that the junk poets will sort of explore or inhabit when they've opened up one of these world building books. And now they are somebody else. And we had this reveal where you kind of start framing your world from the perspective of somebody in one of the books. And then you mm -hmm. flip over your character sheet and on the back is like the junk poet equivalent of who you've just played. And everybody really loved that reveal of the flip. And it's hard to know whether that's really sustainable because, you know, you can bake in a surprise for your game, but that only works once. But that's also, I don't know, that's the idea of all the, like, the legacy board games, right? Where it's like, well, there's an envelope. It'll be a surprise when you open it, and it only works once, but we'll just have a bunch of them. So it's that kind of thing. Yeah, I think over time, one of our biggest questions of, like, does this work is going to be this sort of meta plot thing that we're playing around with. So those character sheets had two sides. On one side, it was the junk poet. And on the other side, it was the archetype that you are sort of embodying as you build out the worlds. So on these archetypes, there's threads, which are world building questions. So for example, the exchanger has a question of what is life like for the wealthy? Or how do people understand ownership? 
And those are questions they'll be answering as they explore worlds, and they'll be giving it their own color, their own perspective on it. The stitches were something we didn't use at all in the playtest, but we were thinking about what it would be like to, you know, gain new powers as you play the game. And the idea is that these stitches are special things you can do to influence the worlds that you're creating. So, for example, if you were playing the archetype of the ingredient seeker, you might have a stitch like know the deeper importance of a source of food, which is this ability that you can unlock as the game progresses, witness subtle and meaningful social interactions centered around dining, or cook something extraordinary. So we'll have a chance to test those out later, but the threads, the questions, were working very well. Those were getting people into a mindset of their character, and were creating those glimpse worlds in the beginning that felt varied and, and they felt special. In the spirit of Questlandia, the original, we also had the players make a map. And it turned out well. It was mostly mud. Yeah, it was like a little mud, mud dredger's city, mm -hmm. mud dredger's world. It was mostly mud and a palace, which sounds very Questlandia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I would say that for overall, for a first playtest, this went exceptionally well. We had really good playtesters. Like our friends were, they gave feedback that was perceptive and wasn't just telling us what to do or to make it into another game, but they talked about what was working and what wasn't, what was confusing, what felt natural, what they were excited about, a whole bunch of just golden feedback. Yeah. I mean, the the way that I define a good playtest isn't that we came away feeling like, oh my gosh, there's so little in the game that we're going to have to change. We're so close to done. It's like, was the feedback helpful and was it kind-hearted or delivered in a good spirit? Was everybody trying to bring their best self and have fun? And I think that everybody brought that. And when we started this playtest, we just weren't sure. There was nothing that we were sure would end up in the finished game. No, oh, yeah. yeah, no mechanic that we were like, this is going to be in. I mean, I think based on that playtest, it's like we may end up throwing out everything. Yeah. But it still felt good. We also have just a lot more information, though, about what what should be tossed. You know, we had a whole extra set of questions about building up the bigger world that ended up being kind of a bust. So we might throw out everything, but some things we might throw out harder than others. <laughs> Chuck out. <laughs> What what would you say went wrong in that playtest? One thing that I was surprised to see was the this second world building. So we had this first world building session that's sort of an exercise where your junk poets are falling and crashing into this library. And while you're falling, you're having these like Alice in Wonderland moments where you are seeing glimpses of worlds and you only see them for a second. But we have these, you know, these threads that are these questions that players can answer to help build those worlds out very quickly. Those were amazing. The second round of questions, when players have sort of opened up a book and they are now ready to start creating this world that they will presumably spend an entire campaign game in, those questions were a lot harder. And, well, I want to talk with you about it, Evan, because I have some theories about why they were harder. After the game, players were telling us how... It felt jarring to have a completely different set of questions than the ones on their character sheet. 
for building this larger world. And they also talk to us about the pressure that comes into the idea of this being a very long-term world that we're going to spend a lot of time in. It feels weightier to throw out an idea that you know you might be spending weeks exploring. You don't want to just say, you know, funny shoes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it was this combination of the new questions and that, like, oh, okay, now we're doing this for real. Right. So hopefully in our next iteration of this, these questions will be better integrated with the ones on the character sheets. They'll be closer to the archetypal ones. And we'll express the world building in a way that feels like it's not as pressuring. Like, this is a bigger world, but we're not stuck here forever. And there's room to change up the elements of this world. We can start with funny shoes, and we can stick with it, or we can go into detail about how these are actually very serious shoes. There's room for adjustment. You're not stuck. One thing that I think we knew was going to be an issue was that the the junk poet parts of the character sheets just weren't that good. We didn't really have time to write them in a way where it actually felt like you kind of were, you had this pre-made character to grab onto where, you know, you could expand out your character a little bit. Like they were, they were too vague. And I think that we want the junk poet characters to be pretty, I don't know, pre-scripted isn't the word. Right. We wanted the junk poets to be more grounded, you know, like something that's just sort of like simple and tangible and doesn't require the same kind of world building energy that you're putting into all the places you're exploring. I mean, this, these little character sheets that we made for the junk poets ended up kind of being in the same language as the in-world archetypal character sheet sides. You know, like the the plant keeper junk poet has, you have these little, I, I don't know, flavorful blurbs, and it says like, you have the patience and sternness to tame what would grow wild. And really, I think what we needed was like, your name's Jenny, you're 27, everybody thinks that you're the problem. <laughs> You've got dirt under your fingernails. You wear overalls all the time. Uh, Yeah, so there wasn't a lot for players to grab onto, and I think that that ended up kind of creating this cascade of issues with that part of gameplay. Because if you can't envision your character, it's hard to move forward from there. So we had a whole segment where we revealed the junk poets that you are, they've landed in the library, and we established how everybody knows each other. We went through and made relationships and introductions. And that part was not a slam dunk. Mm-mm. You know, some parts of the feedback were like expressing that it was nice to have this kind of shift, like a very different perspective than the world building one. But it was still a difficult process where it put a lot of pressure on the players to figure out who they are specifically and then how they know each other, and then just to jump right into role-playing with one another and, you know, embodying a whole personality that they had to make up on the spot. Yeah, I mean, I thought that it was really good feedback to hear from one of the people in the game that, like, that switch from the world-building to learning about your character felt like a really welcome mental break. And I think that we could have helped it even more by just really kind of pre-scripting those character sheets. So in our playtest, you meet your junk poet avatars after you've landed on the floor of the library. And before then, you've been falling, hitting books, and getting glimpses of strange worlds within them. Those glimpse worlds were created by questions on your character sheet. 
that you were choosing as you fell and were rounded out by other players asking questions. Each one of those was very different. And then each one of them was destroyed or changed by a draw of a card that introduced some element that disturbed the vision and ended it. The act of making these worlds and then throwing them away And we did that in quick succession for every player. So we made four worlds and discarded them all. There was some disagreement about that, about how it felt to make these worlds that were actually interesting and had hooks and players were excited to explore them and then to throw them in the waste bin. Some players said it felt like a waste. There was like, there's good ideas and investment in these worlds. And others said it felt liberating to know that you can make this, like exercise this muscle, create a world that seems interesting and throw it aside without worrying that you've made a huge investment or that you won't be able to do this again. Yeah, I thought it was exciting to see that disagreement in the game of, you know, the people who wanted to have those glimpse worlds be, you know, maybe like you end up picking one and then, okay, now that is your campaign world. Or maybe we'll revisit all of these worlds at some point versus the players who were like, that was a really good mental exercise and it felt really freeing to know that none of these worlds were going to stay. It, it felt like, you know, you could be goofy or take risks. It's an exciting situation in playtesting because it's hard to compromise between those two viewpoints. If we said, okay, we'll just take one world and that'll be one that we pick later to keep. That would impact how it felt to make all of these worlds, because you still know this might be a really important world. I don't want to mess it up by making talking guitars in it. (laughs) Well, and like you were saying, Evan, about how, you know, when you flip over the character sheets, that can only really be a reveal once. And like, what makes that feel good? Is it the, the like, ooh, surprise that makes it feel good? Or does it just feel good to flip something? Um, <laughs> I feel like it's similar with the idea of a glimpse world becoming your campaign world is that like, you know, you can, if you're all playing for the first time together, that could potentially be a surprise. Mm-hmm. But it's only going to be a surprise once. Like, oh, now we pick one world and one of these is going to be our world world. That will never be a surprise again. So you can end up sort of gaming that system. It seems like the experience of making these worlds will change a lot based on what you as a player know about how they're going to be used in the rest of the game. If you know they're going to be thrown away, you know that you can throw out anything you want. You're just going to be living in this world for five minutes. So it's okay if it goes crazy off the rails, if it's as bonkers as you like. And you can sort of get that out of your system too. Can be like, I'm just thinking about talking candy. That's all that I can only imagine gummy bears that are all, you know, crying out in unison. <laughs> I'm just going to plop it into this world, let it be there, and then this world will be gone. I and just I'll be have free. to get that out of my system. Yeah. Talking candy. Yep. You know, lollipops that spin and whistle. That's all I am ever thinking about. <laughs> the desire to get that out of my head is so great. And never before have I had an outlet. Right. This is the only game that lets you plop that singing candy in and then throw it into the waste bin. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) So if we compromise and say you can use some of these worlds, it'll take that away. But if we leave it as is, there's the legitimate complaint that you're putting good energy and great ideas into these little worlds and now you can't use them. 
and maybe you really wanted to preserve something there, but it's gone. I liked the worlds that we created in those little glimpse worlds. Um, and I think that I am, I feel like I'm, I'm on both sides of this argument. Yeah. Uh, like I like them and I like throwing them out and I like them and I can totally imagine grabbing onto those, one of those little worlds and expanding it out more. So I'm excited to see what we end up doing. Are you leaning in one direction or the other? Well, so, you know, we have another playtest coming up. We have about a hundred other playtests coming up. Something I want to try for them is the idea of making those worlds sort of off limits of like just grabbing a whole world. But inviting players to reintroduce an element from them in a world that they're making, like having it be okay for players to say, okay, I'm going to say that in this new world that we're exploring, people are in gilded cages that protect their valuables. And that'll be a callback to a glimpse world, but that'll be okay. And we're not tied to all the details of that world. You know, I think that idea had even come up in our playtest at the end when we were sort of doing the debrief session. And then I was thinking about it yesterday as we were driving back from our little holiday travels and we were listening to the audiobook of The Subtle Knife, which is the second book in the Golden Compass trilogy. And Lyra is in another world for the first time. And she's in Oxford, but it's not her Oxford. And Jordan College, where she grew up, is, like, missing. It's mm -hmm. different. Like, Oxford has sort of looked the same, but without any Jordan College. She's having this moment of vertigo. And then she sees these gates leading into a college. And outside of the gates, somebody has carved the same initials that she's seen in her own Jordan College. Right. Uh, and this isn't Jordan College, but it's like, you know, PS or SP or something. Like, it's the exact same initials. And I can see something like that being a great way to justify why you would bring something. In. Like, there are all these worlds, and they're all sort of overlaid on top of each other. And they're going to be, like, this can be a totally different world. And the wealthy are also, also wear cages in this world. Yeah. Or there's this same cave in this world. Sort of a mechanized deja vu. What do you think of that? I'm into it. I like it. I mean, it's the goal is to make it so the stuff that flits into your head as you're building these worlds is okay. You don't have to stifle it. So it's like, ah, we're making this world and I'm just thinking back to that glimpse world where there were some amazing shoes. I'm going to bring them in. And that's okay. You know, it makes me think of like, this is a little bit of a, this is a little bit of a, I'm, I'm tangenting. Very well. But I'm just thinking about how, you know, whatever you're reading or watching at the time while you're also designing something or writing something, that starts to work its way into, like, the tone of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And right now, like, for the past, you know, month, everything has been golden compass. So I feel like it's going to be sort of working its way into the redesign of Questlandia, which I think is fine. I mean, it's always been on the list of inspirations for the game. But I'm glad I'm not listening to, like, I don't know, Seven Habits of Highly Successful Businessmen, the audiobook, because I don't know what that would be doing for the game. I mean, we did just watch The Room, so that's probably filtering in, too. That's true, yeah. Oh, hi. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think that will be changing for sure in the next playtest? The 
thing that I'm most excited to change and that I'm happy to sort of take the lead on as we divide up this work is totally redoing those junk poet character sheets. Mm-hmm. I'm curious how, I mean, so one one model that we were talking about using was kind of the Apocalypse World, like Monster Hearts playbook, where there's a lot about a Monster Hearts character sheet that's been pre-designed for you. Mm-hmm. You are customizing your backstory, but you have you have a list of names to choose from. You have a list of moves. You have, what else do you have? Oh, you have a look you know, these like a different look written down and you essentially just are circling some from a list, but you could go from Monster Hearts campaign to Monster Hearts campaign playing the ghost every time and having a pretty different experience. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot on that character sheet to guide you. Yeah. I like the idea of the junk poet character sheets having a lot of the character building offloaded onto us as the designers so that the players can chill. They can just choose a few things from a list and not get, uh, not have to spend as much energy making these characters. And it's that becomes a little bit of a balance, too. I mean, we had some arguments going into this first playtest where we were like, okay, if we're having five players, let's make five character sheets. And I was like, no, if we're having five players, we have to have 10 character sheets because the fear, my fear of getting stuck with a character that I feel like I can't play is so, so big. So my little, my empathy kicks in, my empathy anxiety. One thing that we talked to the playtesters about is that we stuck them with archetypes covertly, sort of, as they're falling into the library. We have all these character sheets out on the table, and each one has some questions. And we say, choose a question you want to answer, and that'll be the glimpse world you're describing. So the investigator is a character sheet that'll be out on the table and somebody will glance at it and see it has the question, what's something in this world they're trying to hide? And that sparks their imagination. And they're like, okay, I'm going to describe a world around a dungeon with a secret in it. But with the version of the rules we play tested, that means that player is now the investigator for the rest of the game because they chose that question. They'll own the junk poet side of it, and they'll be taking on that role in every world that we explore from now on. It's a big investment for that little peek at your sheet. And yet, you know, I specifically asked how people felt about that. People felt okay. They felt like there was enough room within these archetypes to mold it into a character they'd be happy to explore. Yeah, I was I had pushed back a little bit on this idea of, you know, you look at your character sheet focused on the questions, uh, not necessarily thinking that this is that you are choosing this character, you're just choosing a question. And then we're like, surprise, this is now your character. And I was nervous about that. But it seemed to not be a big deal. And I mean, we have so many more playtests that we're going to be doing. But I think that there's going to be a way to make everybody happy, regardless. That's just the place where we have to make sure there's enough customization that you can make this into a character you're happy owning and not be stuck completely with something where we've spelled out every little bit of them. Because I have played games before where, you know, it's like the only the only character left over is somebody uh, that I'm just like, I have no idea how to play this person. And this game is going to be worse for everybody because I've been stuck with the, I don't know, what's the character that I'm the worst at playing? The oil baron. 
<laughs> as long as I'm like the self-deprecating oil baron, it's fine. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I tend to sort of gravitate towards the same types of characters in game to game, which I've realized over the years. And I mean, one nice thing about this process is that it does encourage players to try an archetype they're not as familiar with. They'll end up with something that's a little bit outside of their comfort zone, at least some of the time. So one thing that we had joked about in our last episode about what what was our last episode about? Oh, it was about planning for the first playtest. Yep, uh, was that we had this argument about like how much narrative justification we needed for entering these worlds, and we're like, "Ha ha! You can trip, and then suddenly a book is open because you fell on it, and now you've entered the world, and whoops, you're in a world now." And I thought that that was just something that I was obsessed with, but there <laughs> maybe because. This particular person listens to the podcast and, you know, had that idea in his head that there needed to be a narrative justification, maybe because it was actually missing. Like, that became a bit of a thing that we got hung up on, was just this, like, why Why did these people who are stuck in this library, who have just had a big fall, who are presumably kind of terrified, like, why are they suddenly in a world? What gets them there? And we don't really have that answer yet. Yeah, we failed to figure that part yeah. out. <laughs> so in our playtest, we said, okay, now we're exploring a book. Yeah, pick up a book. And and there's so many things. I mean, <laughs> like a book floats to you magically and it opens. Uh, so we still haven't answered that question of like, is, is there going to be a letter from an older world, world weaver that's like, the only way out is in. <laughs> I mean, what we're missing is not just that, but how junk poets move and get around and make decisions, period. It's just not clear. There's no rules about how you can walk through the library or see something or choose to do it. We, in our playtest, just said, now you're here doing this, and now you're here doing that. In the actual game, you know, it's GMless. There won't even be somebody to say that. And there's, I mean, there's no reason to assume, like... Role-playing games can break this down at every level. Like, you can move around freely in one game. You could leave the room. You could go to another city. You can hop on a plane, and you just make that choice. Mm -hmm. And in another game, you know, you get out a ruler when you want to move to the other end of the room, and you roll for, uh, I don't know, stroll. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Try to dodge all the books in the room. Avoid getting thrown into another glimpse world. Yeah. That's a real hazard of the library, yeah. So yeah. I, who knows, maybe strolling won't be so casual in this world. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we have to figure out. Or like, what are the limitations around just basic shit? <laughs> <laughs> and so hopefully, as we puzzle that out, it also gives us some guidance on how we want to frame the exploration of these worlds. This isn't supposed to be a place where you have a choice about whether or not you want to go in and investigate worlds. You That's, will be investigating worlds. Uh, yeah, the yeah. world where you're just the junk poets sitting around a campfire in the library, burning the books and, you That's know, like roasting marshmallows. That's like the menu screen of this game. Yeah. But you don't play in it. Just the menu screen. Right. It's a weird thing to not know how to do. But this is something that, like, writers talk about, too. It's like, you know, I can know all about the world-ending conflict, but I don't know how to get my character to cross over to the room and, like, make some tea. It's just a real thing. Like, how much of that description does your story deserve? Yeah. So, 
that's <laughs> that's something I would love to change for the next playtest, but it also feels like a pretty big sticking point currently. So we'll just we'll chip away at it and see how far we get. So Evan, if I'm going to be sort of focusing for this next playtest on designing those junk poet character sheets, what's something that you really want to be focusing on? I want to take another look at our questions for creating the bigger worlds. So the archetype sheets have specific questions that are related to the kind of character you are. The empath has a question, what feelings rule the people of this world? We made a second set of questions for everybody to be answering as you build out the larger form world. And it has questions like, I see a way of life different from my own. I guess that's not a question. (laughs) It has a it has a prompt, a prompt that you would continue with the information. So I see an important moment of the recent past. Or I see a confusing and alarming vision. (laughs) There I liked the answers that people were coming up with, but it slowed down the game a lot. It ground to a halt as people were looking at this list and trying to figure out which question they wanted to answer and how to answer it and trying to balance their archetype with these questions. And it was really hard for me to identify whether people were having trouble answering these questions because these or these prompts because the prompts were too big and like they they weren't specific enough or because people were feeling like mentally fatigued by the little bit of world building they'd already done for these glimpse worlds or feeling, you know, like a a subtle resentment about like the attachment that they had to these glimpse like I I was having trouble identifying what the what the issue was. There was also the fact that we had no transition from being a junk poet to now creating this world. Yeah, yeah. And it was a bit abrupt. the extra weight, which we mentioned before, of creating a campaign world as opposed to a little disposable world. And maybe it was all of those things at, at once. Like, Yeah. It's hard to say in a playtest what, what elements combine to make something feel not right. But we can at least know that it wasn't working as written. Not great. It wasn't a total failure. And the world that was made was really cool, but it was clearly very demanding on the players. It was draining. Another thing I want to look at as we're working on the next version is giving the players more information about what they're doing. We kind of just, you know, threw players into, now you're falling. Now it's time to choose a question. Now you have to introduce yourself. And I think it would help everybody if they knew the full structure of the game they were getting into and what they were doing and how long they'd be doing it and how to get from one part to the next. I mean, we don't have all those answers, but we can give more than we did. We definitely had sort of a, you know, blindfolded approach to to player information. Yeah, it's the difference between like you're playing a game and like here is the game that you're playing. So, I mean, I think that you know, our playtesters had, they came with as much buy-in as they could because they're our friends, but we could have given them a lot more to make them feel like grounded and secure and like they knew what they were doing and what this game was about. Yeah, it was borderline cruel. (laughs) (laughs) And it's tough. I mean, it makes me think of like the issue of making a sequel to, you know, a movie or something where, 
I don't, this isn't going to be an issue when this game is actually published because we're essentially just remaking the entire game. Mm-hmm. But we will have the issue during the play tests of a lot of people having played Questlandia original and they're going to be taking things consciously or subconsciously from the original and trying to sort of like mentally import them right. into this new version. And we have to be careful of assuming yeah. that too. Assuming that people know the groundwork of Questlandia or assuming that they won't be influenced by it. I mean, I think there were even, I think there's information we even left out of this play test because we talk about it so often in the podcast that yeah. like we forgot to kind of tell everybody, you know, about the junk poets and we we're just like, Oh, they listen to the podcast, right? What kind of dweeb wouldn't listen to this podcast? (laughs) Um, A whole section of this game that we didn't even do a first draft of for this playtest, because we assumed it would just end with the creation of this first world, is how to actually play out that world once you've made it. Right now, we don't have any rules for how you can change the world or influence it or what happens when live there's in a it. conflict yeah how you make coffee how you make toast <laughs> like there's nothing there's nothing once you're in that world it's blank so having a first draft of that is uh, is what we're going to be doing for the next play test also because we don't plan on having like eight person games Every time we will be better about getting our scheduling straight. Yeah. More scheduling, less flus. Yes. (laughs) So hopefully that's done. (laughs) So we have our work cut out for us. Our next playtest is in a week, I think. One week. Yeah. Something like that. Right after the new year. Right. We'll be new people then. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Completely reborn. Who will be in 2018. So our past few episodes have been pretty mechanics heavy as we were planning for this first playtest. We're going to be shifting gears a little bit for the next episode and talking about the act of collaborative design. Not only is Questlandia a game that is being designed collaboratively as a joint effort between uh, me and Evan and, you know, the last Questlandia was designed collaboratively, but Make Big Things is a cooperative Like the company functions as a worker co-op, and that means that everything that we do and every choice that we make is approved by consensus by three people, me and Evan and Brian Van Slyke, who has not been present in this podcast, but is present in everything that we do as a company. Mm -hmm. And we'll likely be, you know, giving a brief post-play test report as well for the latest game of Questlandia. Oh, yeah. Don't worry. We won't drop, you know. (laughs) Yeah. We know that that everybody's waiting to hear how, you know, these playtests are going. So we're not going to abandon that, but we're going to give just like a little mental break from this mechanics-heavy stuff. And and the collaboration is a part of the mechanics. I mean, it really does inform everything that we do and even the way that we design game mechanics. I mean, there's no part of this game that it's just been you're in charge of that and I'm in charge of this. It's been... For every little detail of it, there is some consultation. So you can see where our sort of socialism bleeds into (laughs) our game design. (laughs) Your thoughts and questions. I think with the holidays, it's been a quiet few weeks in terms of design doc, you know, feedback (laughs) Mm -hmm. and hubbub. Uh, But one question that we have been getting this week is if people can play the playtest of Questlandia the sequel. Yeah, if people can jump in and start doing our work. (laughs) 
<laughs> so thank you for wanting to play these earlier uh, really rough versions of the game. The answer right now is that it's going to be a while before we have something that's really easy to share. I mean, so much of this right now are like, we've written out the character sheets, but we there are no rules even written down accompanying them. Like, it's just a little soon. Yeah. Right now, what we have written down is kind of a shorthand for the ideas that we're keeping in our heads. And the process of writing those into rules that could be understood by somebody who isn't us is a project of its own. Yeah. (laughs) So that's a project that we're going to be taking on probably a few versions down the road from the version that we have now of the game, which the version we have now is like nothing. Right. I mean, it's enough to get you, well, just about nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, one work that I do want to do and do want to take on is, you know, exporting some of these documents that we've created just so I can share them, whether it's on the Make Big Things website or share them through OneShot. But, you know, like Evan said, that is work, work of its own. So I will try. Uh, and our focus right now is just sort of getting from playtest to playtest and making sure that we have something usable to show to, you know, the people who have been nice enough to give us their time. I mean, by sharing the scraps of this game, I think people would be welcome to try to assemble some sort of game out of it. <laughs> and I would love to hear reports of what, what they piece together. Yeah, so we'll we'll share the scraps. And then I think maybe what we will do is put up some sort of, I don't know, like, like an email sign up list. Mm-hmm. Where do we where do we want to put that up? I guess we can tweet it out or something. Just shout at your computer right now with yeah. your email address. <laughs> uh, and we will add you to a list of people to contact as soon as we have a public playtest available. But no rush, because, you know, that's going to be probably even a few months, maybe February, probably not. <laughs> well, spring. Let's say the spring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you for being interested. Uh, we're really excited to share it. And this is good incentive to try to get something actually readable up online for people to look at and play. If you have questions or thoughts about the podcast, you can email us at designdocpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at designdocpod and tweet your ideas. You can also follow us personally. I'm a drawn novel on Twitter. And I'm Han Bandit. The Design Doc intro and outro theme was created by our friend, musician Pat King. Thank you, Pat. The Design Doc podcast is hosted by the OneShot Podcast Network. If you enjoyed Design Doc, you can visit oneshotpodcast.com where you'll find other great shows like Adventure. Adventure is an actual play podcast hosted by Pranks Paul that focuses on generating fan fiction for established books, TV shows, and movies through tabletop gaming. Adventure will feature a rotating cast of players in a variety of media properties. And if you're liking what we do here, you can always head over to Design Doc on iTunes to leave us a review. It helps other people find the podcast and it fills us with determination. Thank you for listening. 
We'll see you soon, heroes.